This week on the Cameron Journal podcast, we're talking about all sorts of exciting things, including impeachment. We're going to talk about um, self-driving cars and some problems with that. Roger Stone got convicted today. And we're also going to talk about the ouster of Evo Morales in Bolivia, as well as the... um, as one article put it, sober clarity behind the impeachment proceedings. So strap in. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cameron Journal Podcast. We had some technical drama this week that was very interesting. As many people who've been following me on Instagram know, um, moved to a new space And my microphone cable ended up um, behind my desk, which is also near the baseboard heat. And it looked like the baseboard heat ruined the microphone cable. So I had to actually get a new one, got it delivered this morning. So I was worried my mic had gone, which is very sad because I bought a new expensive condenser mic recently. And... um, Yeah, I was uh, I was kind of like, well, if this cord doesn't work out, we're going to have to <laughs> record on the field recorder, which I used to do when I had the Cameron Cowan show. I didn't have the fancy setup I have now. Um, no, no. I um, I used to have a, a Tascam field recorder. It cost 100 bucks, and that's how I would record. I used to record my videos on a, uh, on a little camcorder because I couldn't afford... A DSLR. I didn't realize that's what a lot of other YouTubers were using, and I was kind of like, why is it like cheap tourist camcorder and then super expensive equipment? Not realizing that like video, like DSLRs that take video, um, are uh, like the in between of those things. So I eventually got a DSLR and way better, and I used the Tascam actually as the microphone for that, so the sound is better. And, uh, yeah, so complicated equipment situation that was a lot of fun to solve. This week I wrapped up um, getting a bunch of blog posts done for thecameronjournal.com, which was um, great. Cameronjournal.com is where I post all sorts of interesting things. I write about things that I see in the world. I post interesting videos that I think are worth watching with my own commentary um, it's different, very different content from rouges.com, um, <clears throat> rougesmagazine.com rather. Um, rouges is always very, very kind of pop culture On my own personal blog, I go in on, on stuff more that's kind of a, a real personal interest or just things that I think are worthy of, of your attention. Um, and on Rouges, we talk about all sorts of things, including sex and whatnot that I don't talk about on my personal blog. Um, and just I, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to develop it as a kind of you know haven of my world and and to talk more about my my writing and what stuff that I'm working on and how I'm feeling with things. Um, 
and with all the social commentary stuff that I know people kind of like joy and ex enjoy and expect from me, it's it's in flux. As I restarted the Cameron Journal, um, I struggled with the concept because when I was doing the talk show, it was my main site. So it was basically whatever content I had automatically went on there. That might be a video, it might be a podcast, it might be an article, and every day we had something different. Well, now a lot of that content has moved over to Rouge's. <laughs> and leaving my blog with the, I don't want it to be another Rouge's, so what is this blog going to be? And I realized it was my chance to start very similarly to like Nicholas Crystal and others of like a column from me, just kind of ruminating on the world around me. Um, and it's also been a great way to tie current events to stuff that's been going on in my book. Um, so the, it's, it's been good. It's been good that way. Um, and, and as I said, I'm, you know, I find different kind of interesting videos that I think are worthy. And so I'm kind of like, okay, let's talk about this. Let's, um, uh, you know, let's, let's, you'll look at this aspect of healthcare or this for a different thing and go in depth in a way that we just would never do on Rouge's because that's not the audience. Um, so that's been all right. Taking a drink so I don't end up with throat issues and coughing. Um, I've made it almost five minutes without coughing, which can sometimes be a record on the podcast. Um, so that's that's kind of been a, an interesting interesting sort of sort of struggle. Um, I'm also kind of I'm in the middle of partially freaking out because my first novel, Cast Iron, is due out in December and it's November fifteenth, and I have a lot of marketing tasks and things to do. I'm also trying to get the bookstore, the Widgery Reading Boutique, ready for the holidays. We're going to be offering ebooks and audiobooks here soon. All that's got to get in place. And um, and I've also got to get the new uh, paper book selections that I've selected. I've got to get that data from Ingram and get it on the site in time for holiday shopping. So lots of things going on here. Very exciting. We're going to talk more about the new bookstore selections in a future episode because um, there's some very interesting things. And when the ebooks and audiobooks are ready, I will let you know. Um, and there'll be new buttons on the site and new information and a blog post about that and all that sort of things. There's a lot of moving parts. And over in Rouge's, we are launching the uh, Rouge's store here soon, which we're also trying to get ready for holiday shopping, which is proving, uh, proving to be difficult all by itself. So... It's it's a lot of moving parts. It's a lot of stuff going on, but hopefully we'll be setting us up for um, a really great future. So this week, the news impeachment has pretty much sucked the air out of the room when it comes to the news. But there has been a lot of other stuff going on. And the story I want to lead with <clears throat> is actually happening um, in Bolivia. So this week, um, Eva Morales, who was a a real kind of vanguard of left-wing um, politics and socialist politics in South America where those things are 
um, always in conflict with more right wing uh, and kind of internationally influenced neoliberal ideas, <clears throat> was deposed in a sort of coup by some right-wing people. Um, so the South American continent is kind of in turmoil right now because in Brazil, you have Bolsonaro coming into power and the burning of the Amazon, which also took place in, in Bolivia with farmers um, burning down the rainforest to create cultivated land. And then you have Evo Morales out in Bolivia. Argentina is defaulted on its debt, and there are huge protests in Chile in regards to social services. Um, Chile was the first country to have neoliberal reforms. I talk about in my book, What the Hell is Going On? A Primer to Understanding Our World in the Age of Trump. And I talk about how Chile was kind of the first test case of neoliberal reforms and mark and relaxing market regulations and basically creating conditions for the ultra-wealthy to exist. So... Um... It... it so it's, it's all very... South America is kind of in a bit of turmoil right now. And of course, there's the ongoing Venezuelan crisis. So pretty much everywhere you look in the continent, there's very odd and interesting things going on. But in this story from Aussie.com, um, Philip Kowalski wrote this story about how Morales may want to follow the path of another Bolivian leader. <clears throat> um... Victor Paz Estan um, was in and out of power through various and sundry military juntas and other things from the 50s to the 80s. Um, he kind of swept into power um, in the early 50s and ended up being in and out of power through to the early 80s. The point of the story is that Morales, just because he's out of power today, doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be out of power forever because Bolivian leaders have a tendency to end up back into power. One of the problems Bolivia has, and indeed we're familiar with this in the United States, <clears throat> is that uh, uh, th the issue with indigenous peoples, so a lot of the majority of the country, you know, indigenous people have been living there for thousands of years on the same land, living very similar sort of lifestyles, doing their thing. Unfortunately, the indigenous people oftentimes sit on land that is, that is valuable for oil, gas extraction, industrial development, farmland, whatever have you. And so while the indigenous people want to continue living the same lifestyle they've been living for hundreds of years in many cases, um the state oftentimes would like to enjoy the revenue of the natural resources underneath the indigenous peoples, which means their land and ultimately their way of life oftentimes gets destroyed on a pathway to greater profitability of the state and increased revenues. Bolivia nationalized their oil in 1937, um, but most of those reforms have been walked back. The tension of who owns what natural resources and who benefits from them financially is an ongoing conversation throughout the entire South American continent. <clears throat> Indeed, in a variety of countries, even including in the Middle East, the um, control of valuable natural resources ultimately determines who does or does not stay in power. A lot of times, it's foreign companies 
that come in to exploit these natural resources and the wealth ends up leaving. So for example, in like Venezuela before um, Chavez nationalized the oil in Venezuela, um, most of the oil reserves and oil extraction and refining capacity were owned by Sitco. <clears throat> and, um, and that meant that the profits from the wealth minus modest, very modest taxes um, left the country. So the Venezuelan people themselves did not benefit from their own resources that were right under their feet. Bolivia has a similar problem. Now, interestingly enough, Bolivia has made some pretty big changes to try to bring more of the wealth back to people. But it says here that um, uh, usually what happens is the Bolivian state runs out of money, needs more revenue, and then ends up selling out to the West in in order to, you know, get get the necessary revenue to keep the government government going. So it says here, it says, while Bolivia's highly publicized 2010 law of the rights of Mother Earth garnered praise abroad, it's another story at home. Quote, within recent years, Bolivian budget deficit projections have gotten worse. So Morales has had to engage in incentivizing the international community to invest in Bolivia's resources, says Carwell Bjork James, a Bolivia expert and a professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University. While Bolivia's natural resources are ostensibly nationalized, its economic dealings with China and the West have been marked by a lack of transparency in recent years. And it goes on to talk about a road that was constructed through indigenous lands and the contributions of burning the Amazon rainforest. And that ultimately, while Morales made bold moves to try to change things in Bolivia, he ended up falling into the same trap everyone else did. And that ultimately led to his ouster and a lack of um, support from the people that got him into power in the first place, ultimately leading to his ouster. So why is this important and why do we care? Because that's always important. <laughs> why is it important? Why do we care? Um, the reason it's important is because it's in our own backyard here in the United States. Two, it shows us what can go wrong with leftist policies and resource nationalization, which I don't necessarily always think is a good idea. And for two, it also is a lesson in trying to balance the needs of business and the needs of the people. And that is, that's a... That's a ongoing conversation we're having in America as well in terms of we generate all of this wealth and how is it getting distributed? And oftentimes we have um, we have a money distribution problem, not a poverty problem in terms of all the money is flowing into the hands of ever fewer people rather than being in the hands of people who can spend it using, keep the economy going. And so it's it's good to be aware of South America. It's good to be aware of what's going on. It's There's a wave of populism going around the world right now, from Hong Kong to Chile to Syria. Populism is on the rise. And I dare say, given how things are going in the 2020 presidential election, we in the United States will not be immune from the same trends. So... 
Um, another kind of story that has just happened on Friday, November 15th, is um, Roger Stone was convicted of seven federal felonies today. Um, from the Washington Post, it says here, on Friday, President Trump's longtime political advisor, Roger Stone, was found guilty on seven criminal charges related to testimony he gave to Congress as part of investigations into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Those charges included five counts of offering false statements, one of obstruction, and one of witness tampering. Stone is scheduled to be sentenced early next year. Stone was with Trump at the very beginning of the president's time in politics. In fact, Stone long pushed Trump to enter into the political world, encouraging him repeatedly to announce presidential bids in previous cycles. He was sidelined during Trump's 2016 run after either quitting or being fired, as with many things related to Stone, details are murky. <clears throat> Roger Stone is, I think, the one, two, three, four, five, sixth person near Trump to be convicted of federal crimes. As George Carlin once said about Reagan in a comedy special, let's get back to Reagan and his criminal gang. It's like, let's talk more about Trump and his criminal gang. The, um... I... If you have not watched the documentary Get Me Roger Stone on Netflix... You should. Here's why. A lot of people, and I didn't know this, so I watched the documentary myself. A lot of people thought Trump kind of sort of came out of nowhere in presidential politics in 2016. That actually was far from the case. Roger Stone had been grooming Trump to run for president since at least 1988. And, most importantly... Roger Stone and Paul Manafort owned a lobbying firm together on K Street, and because of their close connections to the Reagan administration, were basically selling access to the Reagan White House. Now, Roger Stone is a very interesting man himself. He made a name for himself for, <laughs> and you're going to laugh, for being involved in Watergate. Um, he was a young political operative at the time. No one had any clue who he was until his name came up in the in the Watergate hearings. And he used that. <laughs> yes, he used one of the greatest scandals in American political history, possibly until now, as his calling card for why you should hire him. That should tell you everything you need to know about the type of man Roger Stone is. He worshipped Richard Nixon. He has a full back tattoo of Richard Nixon's face. He is a lifelong Republican, and he, in the documentary Get Me Roger Stone, describes himself as an agent provocateur. And he dresses like one. Grays, blacks, blues. He wears fedoras. He looks like a 1930s comic book villain. It's kind of funny. You know, it would be entertaining if he had not corrupted our government. So, Roger, the whole Roger Stone thing is very interesting and very fascinating for a whole variety of reasons. But the fact that he has been quietly, he had quietly groomed Trump to run for office and eventually win, and was ultimately the mastermind behind okay, here's how we get into office, which basically was the Southern strategy 
1972, when Nixon feared that he would be unable to win, um, he was he figured he could woo millions of Southern Democrat votes from uh, from you know from the Democrats to the Republicans by playing into their racism and by uh, and, and by giving them somewhere to go now that the Democrats were embracing the civil rights movement. And it worked. He won in 1972. And that idea of playing into racial politics is something that has not been given enough credit in political science circles. It caused what we call the great political switch. The Republican Party went from supporting civil rights and abolition and anti-slavery and all this type of thing to those being Democrat issues and the Republicans becoming what I like to call the country club Republican Party. Um, and uh, th this whole idea of engaging people with anger and racism in order to get them to vote for you, which is, you know, Trump plays in that arena to garner votes for himself is something that is, it's dangerous. It has killed people, even in recent memory, like in Charlottesville, and it serves to divide America. But it's good for getting votes if you're the one willing to play in racial politics. That's the dangerous part, is it's not good for society, but it's good for politicians. But that's the problem with people like Roger Stone. He's little concerned with what's good for society. He's very concerned with what's good for Roger Stone. And he's very concerned with what's good for whoever he's working for. And in that way, he lives up to his reputation and his name as an agent provocateur. All in all, Roger Stone has... He has been a hugely corrupt part of the American government for a long time. Whether he's been in power with Nixon or been on K Street selling access with Paul Manafort to the Reagan White House, he is the type of swamp creature <laughs> in Washington that needs to long be gotten rid of. And it's good that he's finally being convicted. He faces up to 20 years in federal prison. Um, this is, um, this conviction came out of the Mueller investigation and, uh, and I, and that also is just another iteration of the pile of convictions and indictments, active charges, all this type of thing. Um, extending from the investigation. So um, the Washington Post has a great story on kind of all the people who have gotten indicted out of the Mueller investigation. So you should, if you want to keep up on on those ongoing cases, which are still ongoing, although the Mueller report is finished, I highly recommend you do so. Now, we're going to, before we get into the impeachment hearings, a little bit of which I actually watched this morning because it's Friday and I, I always, I record the podcast on Friday. It's my chief, it's my chief job. So you can have it Saturday morning. 
and uh, and and so I'm always I'm always a bit slow because it's Friday. It's the end of the week. I've usually been working super hard all week long on whatever my project is, um, and right now we're um, this week it was the Cameron Journal blog, and then we're also getting ready for December Rouge's content. And uh, so I'm, I was, so I'm always a little slow to get up this morning. So I, when I was kind of dragging myself through the house, I was, I was listening to the impeachment hearings, and we'll get to those in a minute. But I did come across right now on Rouge's. We're working on density and urbanism, and we have some stories to that end, and all this sort of thing. And so when I came across this article in my Feedly about autonomous cars and zombie nile, miles from Jalopnik, I kind of wanted to engage so in this story what this um what this person did um his name is he's a phd candidate mustafa harb um did a study where to see how many miles and how people would use transportation if they didn't have to drive themselves like as an autonomous vehicle would prevent them from having to do he spent two weeks studying how people used a chauffeured car. So here's what he did. He said, all right, I'm going to track the way you use your transportation, your personal car for one week. Then I'm going to see how, what it's like for you to have a chauffeured, to be chauffeured around for two weeks. Because anything an autonomous vehicle can do, a chauffeur can do now. So, um, so, and then we'll, and then we'll see what the adjustment is going back to it. So let's say it takes us like a month. And, um, and so he, they put this study together and the people could use the chauffeur for 60 hours a week because of budget constraints, all this type of thing. And they studied and just kind of see how people would use autonomous vehicles. And the, the outcome was not surprising, but really fascinating. So it says here that, um, let's see. Oh, here it is right here. It says, um... Uh, because the the thing with AVs is everyone was hoping that it would solve traffic and it would ease transportation and it would solve all of these problems. And as we, you know, that also was said 80 years ago with better highways and better roads and better cars. And as you and I know, that didn't solve traffic one iota. It's worse than it ever was. And, uh, with his study, having studied this, is that um, people that had the chauffeured cars actually made 83% more trips than they would have ordinarily. And he also started to look at the specific trips and why they made them. So it says here that um, Harb separated the trips tracked into two categories. So VMT stands for vehicle miles traveled. So he separated them to good VMT and bad VMT. He said, it says here, good VMT are trips that further some societal goals, such as allowing people with mobility issues to make trips they normally couldn't make. The whole point of transportation is to allow people to do activities they want to do, Harb summarized. And good VMT allows people to do those activities independent of health restrictions, to say nothing of restrictions of inconvenience and embarrassment of coordinating another way of getting there. For example, participants who had the largest increase in VMT were retirees. Initially, those same retirees to a person told Harb they thought they would not be good study participants because... 
they may be afraid to drive at night and some on highways. But Harb assured them that that didn't disqualify them from participating at all. In the end, every single retiree used the chauffeur to go to Napa Valley for wine tastings. They did the test in San Francisco, so it's not a far drive. Something they'd wanted to do for a long time but didn't feel comfortable doing themselves. They also used the chauffeur to go places at night where they could only get via highways. On the other hand, there's bad VMT, or trips that generate high amounts of zombie miles. Trips where the car is not transporting any passengers or is replacing public transportation, cycling, or some other available means of getting around. When asked for an example of bad VMT, Harb cited one study participant who, prior to having the chauffeur, took public transportation to work because parking near their office was prohibitively expensive. But when they got the chauffeur, the person got dropped off at work and then, to avoid the cost of parking, had the chauffeur drive their car all the way back home, only to come pick them up again at the end of the day. This person effectively doubled their VMT just so they could avoid parking, a scenario AV researchers warn as more or less the worst-case scenario of an unregulated AV future. But not all of the miles added to San Francisco area roads, thanks to the chauffeur, fit neatly in one of those two buckets. Call them mixed bag VMT. For example, every participant sent their chauffeur to run an errand for them, either dropping off a package or filling up gas or going to the grocery store. These trips could qualify as bad VMT because they're zombie miles. Plus, the fact that there's cost to the owner's car for running these errands is effectively zero will likely result in far more errands being made with little concern for doing them in a somewhat efficient manner. Forget something? Who cares? Send the car back. Circle town three times because errands are programmed in nonsensical order? No worries. You're at home watching TV anyway. But it wasn't all bad, Harb reminded me. People were really happy about the extra time they had because they didn't have to run all these thoughtless errands like going to the grocery store or picking up their own pizza. It doesn't seem right to classify these trips purely as bad VMT if people got to spend more time with their kids or got some extra work done because of them. And so the the big takeaway after all of that is that um, basically his whole idea is that you have to you have to regulate vehicle miles like in order to you know in order to reduce the number of miles traveled and to actually reduce transportation you have to tax you basically have to tax it in a more efficient way than just gasoline taxes and it says here that uh Researchers suggest moving away from the gas tax and towards other forms of road use taxes. Ideally, they generally prefer pay-per-mile usage fees, perhaps even ones that change according to the time of day or density of congestion. Either way, they broadly agree that policymakers should move towards taxing the hell out of zombie miles. Or, as David King, a researcher at Arizona State University, succinctly put it, now's the time to tax the robots. So... Even though the AV future could have a tremendous, um, a tr- kind of have this tremendous moment and could be super cool, to, in order to, you kind of have to come up with a fee structure that's going to prevent people from using their vehicles in an unfair way that would only add to more vehicles on the road, more energy used. Because if something is convenient and easy to use, people are going to use more of it. 
people are going to take more advantage of it rather than doing doing things in the most efficient way possible. And also people are going to do more things. Like in the study how they said that retirees all went to Napa Valley. That was miles that they would have never driven themselves otherwise. And which also kind of brings up the whole thing of if we're pursuing this technology and we're creating easier transportation for people, why do we have to tax it in such a way that people aren't going to use it? That rather defeats the point. I mean, if why spend all this money on this technology and make it easier for people to get around only to then tax them to prevent them from doing so? And of course, this is always going to adversely affect poor people more than wealthy people. So it seems to me that it's something where... It seems to me after the story, it's kind of like the... I think the push is kind of like, we have to make personal transportation extremely expensive, is the takeaway. And I don't know how I necessarily feel about that. Especially given... Most of America does not have good public transportation. And it's incredibly difficult to run a series of errands using public transportation. Um, and I always I always kind of use this in my own life. It's like, okay, for example, I have to so I'm, you know, I live in a rural area, so we're, you know, we're going to theorize that the town that I drive to has some sort of mass transit. So let's say I drive to a transit hub and I get on transit. I need to go to the vape shop. I need to go to Target. I need to stop for something to eat and I need to send a package. Now, all of these things, three of these things are close together and one of them is all over town, you know, is elsewhere. So I've got to be able to take my transit to a stop nearest the most of those errands, do all of those errands by foot, collect all of those items, and then get back on transit, do the one errand that's super far away, and then uh, and then get transit back to the transit hub to then get in my car. I'm not going to be able to transport as many things with me. Like if I'm going to Target to do a Target run, I can only buy the things that I can physically carry on my person, which means I may decide to then have my items delivered, which some would say, okay, that's more efficient because one, you know, one delivery truck running around doing a bunch of deliveries is more efficient than 50 people all going to target. True. But these are the types of things we have to think about. And it's like, how, it's it's a it literally it seems like the future the, the reason why the car hangs on and I where I'm working on an article right now for Rouges about you know the the death of, is the car dead is it's incredibly convenient you can yourself get in your car drive to location X do what you need to do drive to location Y do what you need to do go home you get to set your schedule you get to determine when you go how long it takes and you are only restricted on spaces in terms of how much you can fit in your car. You know, if you need to do a five, six bag target run, if you can fit it in your car, you are home free. And that 
I don't know how transit beats that. And when it comes to autonomous vehicles, all this type of thing, I think people will, it will become, as proven by this study, it will become a tool that people will use to go out and do all the things that they don't want to waste time doing so they can do something else. It's going, it, it can and should make getting around easier, but it seems as if in order to make something efficient and not use so much energy and not use so much space, we basically have to purposefully stop using. Like, we basically have to restrict transportation in such a way that people won't use it or will end up using public transportation or something else and kind of make the whole thing rather cost prohibitive. And I think that's going to make it difficult to make the transition away from personal cars just because of how this country is built. I mean, in order to in order to do this in a fast and efficient way, it's going to be extremely difficult to um, uh, extremely difficult to make that work just because this country is not built in an efficient way. It's not ready for transit. It's built for personalized on-demand transportation and so it's that okay so if, if owning a car becomes cost prohibitive then is how are ride sharing services if they're heavily taxed going to be profitable they already aren't profitable with human drivers and can't make any money would a tax regime make that work like it just the whole thing just doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of we are going to use technology to make something way easier but then people are going to use it more, so we're going to tax the hell out of it to stop people from using it. It, it just, it kind of boggles the mind. And, and I, I feel like it's not doing anything to solve real transportation issues or make anything easier for anyone. It, it seems to me the whole point is to literally stop people from going places. Stop people from doing things. You know, I mean, the, the commuting thing is easy to solve. You can solve a commuting problem with transit. You can solve a commuting problem with, you know, shared rides and rideshare and autonomous vehicles. I can see how you could solve commuting, but in terms of the rest of life, the running of errands, the picking up of kids, the going and, you know, doing multiple things like you know, grabbing a pizza and making stops for different items, all this sort of thing. It seems to me that that aspect of life is something where it's going to be a lot harder to solve those aspects of transportation. It's going to be a lot more difficult to make that more efficient or prevent or try to encourage people to do that in a different way that doesn't involve personal transportation. Like I said, I thought it was a very interesting, interesting article and the whole idea of we're going to improve transportation and then stop people from using it was a little bit nonsensical. Didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So um, the last story we're going to talk about today, and if all goes well, my timing of this should be perfect is we're going to dive into impeachment. So this story from The New Yorker is interesting because it talks about the first two witnesses this week, um, which were William Taylor and George Kent, and how and the, the hearing started on Wednesday at 10 a.m., 
and uh, he, they, both of the men were kind of very sober about what they had observed in Ukraine, what they had been a party to, and what had been going on behind the scenes. So William Taylor was a top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, and uh, George Kent was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, overseeing Eastern Europe and Eurasian affairs. And they provided, as they had earlier in closed-door hearings, um, all the stuff that they had observed in regards to Trump and the quid pro quo with Ukraine involving getting Ukraine to start investigations against Joe Biden for Trump's political gain. And they used um, American um, defense funding to help Ukraine deal with Russia and the invasion of the eastern part of their country as leverage to get them to start these investigations. The deal was so far done that uh, President Zelensky was going to go on Fareed Zakaria on CNN to announce the investigations into Joe Biden. The deal came out before that could happen, and the interview was off. That's how close it came to actually really happening. So... This week, and, and and they get into the July 26th call and all this type of thing, um, and people kind of complained that the interview kind of lacked pizzazz and wasn't exciting or any type of thing, but it was, it was amazing to see two decorated career civil servants talking about how the Trump administration has been doing foreign policy business. So, from the New Yorker story, it says here, according to Taylor, Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, spoke with Trump by cell phone from a restaurant in Kiev. The president's emphasis was single-minded. After finishing the call, Sondland told one of Taylor's aides that, quote, Trump cares more about the investigation of Biden than about the fate of Ukraine. The date was July 26th, the day after Trump issued his now infamous demand that the Ukrainian president do him a favor. Taylor and Kent were impassive, formal witnesses, but they were direct about their sense of dismay. Essential questions emerged from the stories they told. How could a president engage in such brazen self-dealing? How could he play games with the security needs of a state that had been invaded by Russia, first in Crimea, then in the Donbass? To withhold that assistance for no good reason, other than help with the political campaign, made no sense, Taylor said. It was counterproductive to all of what we'd been trying to do. It was illogical. It could not be explained. It was crazy. The president dismissed the hearings as a hoax. He insisted that he was, quote, too busy to watch, although he retweeted more than a dozen video clips, articles, and commentaries in his putative defense. Conservative media outlets from Fox News to Breitbart declared the hearings boring and hoped their audience, the Trump base, would remain unmoved. Republican members of the Intelligence Committee, led by Jim Jordan of Ohio, Devin Nunes of California, made every attempt to confound voters with misdirection and conspiracy theories. Nunez wanted to obscurely the prospect of nude pictures of Trump. The Republicans complained that Taylor and Kent didn't even know the president didn't even know the president. Their testimony was so secondhand. And yet these same legislators are in no rush to have the White House lift its block on witnesses with distinctly first-hand access, including Giuliani and Mick Mulvaney. As Hamilton, 
Madison, Adams, and their colleagues were drafting the founding documents of the country, they expressed concern about foreign influence on the presidency. The sources of their anxiety then resided mainly within France and England. It was therefore powerful to hear Kent compare the plight of the American colonists in their struggle against the British crown to that of the post-Soviet Ukrainians as they have struggled against the Putin regime in Russia. Trump favors Moscow. He has repeatedly dismissed the intelligence community's conclusion that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. As president, he has made it plain that he welcomes outside interference again, if it helps him win re-election. I... And the the big takeaway was, you know, kind of what they said that it, you know, they were aware of the deal that Trump wanted this deal with Biden. It was their testimony, I think, was the smoking gun a lot of people were looking for. However, this isn't 1972. In 1972, when the public hearings in regards to Watergate began, there was no Fox News. There was no Breitbart. There wasn't the internet. Um, there wasn't a, a counter-narrative and a facility to push it. And in, in my book, when I talk about, in, in my essay, Notable Events, Weather and Sports, I, one of the things Roger Ailes and Roger Stone and company figured out was that the Nixon presidency could have been saved if they could have controlled the media narrative. And the mainstream media, all being a bunch of East Coast elites from Columbia, as they put it and thought at the time, um torpedoed the Nixon presidency for, in their mind, no good reason other than he was doing something to ensure his win. Stop me when this starts to sound familiar. And now, here in 2019, the media environment to create a counter-narrative around impeachment is very well established and very much exists. And... That means the argument is harder. So while their testimony was bombshell, being like, yeah, Trump really did engage in self-dealing with Ukraine. He was on the phone with anyone who could get this deal done to get this investigation to Biden to kill Biden's political chances in the presidential race for 2020. I was there, he was there, we all know what's going on, all this type of thing. The Republicans, every question was like, well, he might have done it, but isn't that normal? Is it really that out of the ordinary? They really were trying to get the Taylor and Kent to be kind of like, oh yeah, it, it wasn't that weird. We were just uncomfortable with it. And the reality is that no, the president was trying to use the American government to serve his own political ends. Which, I didn't read the early part about um, the founders in the New Yorker article, is literally this moment is what the founders were afraid of. Foreign influence on the presidency. That was something they very much feared. And how the American government could be co-opted for the personal gain of the president. Or how foreign powers would look to influence the president to serve their own ends. The founders would be up in arms. This is exactly something they feared. And I've said before, Trump is the type of president that they feared. Like, Trump, for, the, for the founders, Donald Trump is literally their worst nightmare. 
they always were afraid that one day this sort of thing would happen. That one day this type of president would be in office. And in that moment, other branches needed the power to stop the president from unfairly damaging the country. And that's one of the reasons why impeachment is in place the way it is and why the crimes are treason, bribery, high crimes and misdemeanors. Because it's like, if there's some treason, if there's some bribery, and then high crimes and misdemeanors, whatever might not be appropriate in executing the office of the presidency. That's why they wrote it that way, so that Congress could, in its collective wisdom, in that moment, decide what and how the president had done something wrong and to have a process in place to remove him if necessary. Now, we all know the chances of the Senate convicting Trump and removing him from office are remote. You need 67 senators. The Republicans control the uh, Senate and... You need 24 Republican senators to stuff it in and convict Trump. The likelihood of this happening is remote. But. But. Um, it's not necessarily impossible. And getting all of this out there in time for a presidential election can give a lot of people, especially moderates, pause about what type of man Trump is and if they want four more years of a self-dealing, selfish president who's willing to let anyone interfere in this country as long as it serves his own political gain. Do Is that the type of leadership you want? Now, people may say, yeah, sure it is. And I think there are some other people who are starting to come around to the idea that Trump promised to go fight corruption and is literally the most corrupt one. And if you're very concerned about corruption and politics, getting rid of Trump is probably the best way to clean up some corruption in in politics. Now, this morning, as I was getting ready to, to, um, to do this podcast... Um, I watched a little bit of the testimony of former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Now, she has already made a super moving testimony and has already been under fire. Trump has already come after her. She's been in the crosshairs. And Amber Phillips posted the story to the Washington Post where she said, to the extent Democrats need a sympathetic figure in this impeachment inquiry story, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, has made a compelling one. On Friday, she publicly testified that she lost her job by being undermined by President Trump's personal lawyer and Ukrainians who felt threatened by the anti-corruption campaign she helped conduct. Yovanovitch stressed she is not trying to be political, but she connected the dots that her ouster at the hands of the president threatened to undermine American interests worldwide. She had already been removed from her post in Ukraine when the alleged quid pro quos were being offered. But Democrats say she was the first domino to fall in this story, a model diplomat who lost her job because of corrupt people who then opened the door for more corruption that politically benefited Trump. And then they have the videos, which are very, um, very interesting and very important. And one of the biggest quotes 
she says that I think is very interesting. She said, these events should concern everyone in this room. Ambassadors are the symbol of the United States abroad, the personal representatives of the president. They should always act and speak with full authority to advocate for U.S. policies. If our chief representative is kneecapped, it limits our effectiveness to safeguard the vital national security interests of the United States. This is especially important now when the international landscape is more complicated and more competitive than it has ever been since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Our Ukraine policy has been thrown into disarray, and shady interests the world over have learned how little it takes to remove an American ambassador who does not give them what they want. After these events, what foreign official, corrupt or not, could be blamed for wondering whether the ambassador represents the president's views? And what U.S. ambassador could be blamed for harboring the fear that they cannot count on our government to, su to support them as they implement shared U.S. policy and defend U.S. interests? And that is, I think, the reason why we do not want self-dealing going on from the White House. That is why what Trump is doing is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And that's why impeachment matters, is that the it's people like Yovanovitch and Kent and, and Taylor that do the hard work of international diplomacy. And if Trump and Giuliani and company are just going to run around with their own back channels, doing their own thing, self-dealing, saving their own hides, not caring one little bit about the needs, wants, and desires of the country as a whole, then what are they doing there? What are they doing there? Are They're just using the full force of the American political power for their own personal gain. That does not benefit anyone. The people talk a good game about the, oh, we want someone to represent us and do things for us. Trump clearly isn't doing that. And I'm not saying that other members of other parties have been perfect or other politicians have been perfect about that. Lord knows they have not been. But Trump obviously is simply only saving his own skin. And he's willing to do almost everything, anything to do so. And we are still not clear about his relationship with Vladimir Putin. He's already done things that directly benefit Russia to the detriment of the United States. Clearly something is going on, and this inquiry is not over, and it will certainly take plenty of time before it ends up getting unwound. So um, I will continue watching the impeachment proceedings and we'll report back here. If you have specific questions about impeachment, please feel free to send me a note email at cameroncowan.net or get at me on social media. I'm happy to answer your questions about process or testimony or how this all works or what would it was like in 72. Um, uh, you know, happy to interact on this topic. So um, I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, don't be afraid to uh, drop me a line. Thanks much, guys. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.